Have you guys gone on this Florida Man subreddit? I feel like I don't have to, only because it's mentioned every Friday on the news something insane happening in the great state of Florida. It makes me want to move to Florida because some of the stuff that happens there is outrageous. I want to see a quarter of the things that are newsworthy coming out of Florida. 74-year-old Florida man on electric scooter chased two with knife. I'm pretty sure that Florida is just a state that, like, the system that will eventually build the matrix is just, like, piloting different headlines to see if anybody will pay attention. Just part of a grand experiment? Yeah. I'm actually actually kind of relieved. Um, I was kind of expecting something regarding bath salt and eating somebody's face, so. That's so 2012. That guy was on a rampage. That was a Florida rampage. You're trying to tell me, like, that doesn't happen in Florida? Like, that's just your normal Tuesday. You know, get it up, going to work, get my Starbucks, guys eating somebody's face, you know. I think you said it right there. It's a normal Tuesday thing now, so it just, like, it doesn't even get news coverage anymore that somebody has just thrown bath salts in their own face and chased people down the street. It's just a common thing now. Kind of like uh, in New York City when you see people like getting mad at somebody for jumping up on the subway trying to kill themselves and it's like, you're messing up my commute to work. Like It's just a normal <laughs> event at this point. Do you know who I am? What other uh, uh, headlines you got, Gato? Florida woman oh. passes out at wedding, throws up, then gets dressed pooped on by nephew. That sounded pretty normal for the first maybe like sentence of that headline. And then things got a little wonky. Um, so again, very interesting how that panned out. Here's a good one. Florida man dances on top of police SUV to ward off vampires. Tracks. <laughs> he, he was informed that if he danced on the SUV, he'd be safe from vampires planning a human sacrifice. I heard the CDC is now recommending that you have to do that to get rid of coronavirus. Yeah, at least the Omicron variant. Performing the dance routine to songs including Hall & Oates' Rich Girl and Super Tramp's Goodbye Stranger. Those are quality songs. That's a good playback for uh, when you're breaking it down on top of a police cruiser. Yeah, I heard it was supposed to be Sweet Caroline that really gives you the best protection. Kind of like, you know, you can get the Johnson & Johnson or you can get the Moderna. Sweet Caroline is where you really get the best protection. Florida man stabs himself with a sword after he falls off bike. Who amongst us hasn't ever done that? This is how this guy started his new year. This happened on the 1st of January. You know, what better way to take your brand new, like, Schwinn 32-speed bike out? And the way to ruin it is just impaling yourself with your katana that you brought with you. I mean, I don't go anywhere without a katana these days. I will I will say, like, if that's how you're starting, it really can't get any worse, right? I mean, it's got to be up from there. This story could have been a lot worse, right? He probably had a destination with that sword, and Slade was going to taste blood at some point during that day. It's only a matter of time, really. Yeah, this was a ticking tie bomb. In the end... Like a that's... prophecy. It's a prophecy, like it was meant to happen. He's going to Antonio Brown's house. He was pissed because he lost in the championship. It's all connected. Like this, it's just a big matrix play in the Sunshine State. According to the TMZ, they're now dating. You know, hopefully, hopefully ends well for them. Oh, that's good to hear.
Alrighty, folks. Well, welcome to the Second Mouse Podcast, a lifestyle podcast about the musings of the day, general commentary, and anything that we feel that you need to know. And what we felt you needed to know was Florida headlines from the Reddit sub subpage. Um, you can catch us on Apple Podcast, on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and other locations. Um, we have a brand spanking new Instagram account. Follow us at Second Mouse Podcast and give us a like. We also have a Twitter account, which goes by Second, which is 2ND Mouse Podcast. Um, a little harder to say than I thought it would be, but that's okay. Um, guys, this is episode two. How are we feeling about the first episode? Um, it's all up from here. Wow. Cool. <laughs> so much excitement. Gatto, how are you feeling about that, too? I am pleasantly surprised at how well we've done so far. Um, I'm hoping we can keep it going, you know? See, see where this takes us. Gatto's the yin, and I'm the yang. We, we kind of just level it out perfectly. Eternal optimist and eternal pessimist. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, for all those that are out there listening in the world, do us a favor and give us a five-star rating on any of your podcast platforms and write us a review. We're just three individuals trying to make it in this world and make y'all laugh and keep you updated on what's going on and provide our perspective on things. And we need your good vibes and um, good ratings to to help us get the sponsor that we want, which we covered in the last uh, episode, the really uh, restorative qualities of cured meats. So, Tom, Tom, I hate to interrupt you, but we received a cease and desist letter in the mail. Uh, we can no longer speak about Boar's Head. We will now refer to them as BH. They cannot sue us if we refer to them as BH. That's fair. We've done it. We've gone ahead and done it. Um, so, guys, let's get it started. And first and foremost, something that has been... Uh, brewing over the last couple days is the NFL playoffs and the subsequent coach firings that happened from that. So I'm going to ask y'all, where would you like to start first? I know that Q, you are a Giants fan, as well as you, Gatto, who is a Giants fan. Where would you all want to start? Gatto, you go first. I would actually like to start with the Fantasy Football Championship. Yes. You're not dodging this. <laughs> I thought I was... Not I thought I was going to skate through that. Not dodging it. No way. No way, buddy. Gotta well, get, I, I was going to talk a lot of shit, honestly, but the way it panned out, I, I was clenching my cheeks watching the end of that Raiders-Chargers game. It was a good one. Gotta, I believe you were saved by, like, an, was it an overtime catch? Saved by Justin Herbert. I mean, you should be singing your praise to Keenan Allen for getting open. I would, but... If it wasn't for Herbert having amazing fourth down plays, like he kept that drive alive enough to eke out those extra 20 yards that put me over the top. The feeling from that game I got was like Justin Herbert pretty much pulled people in and was like, all right, guys, for the first three downs, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to pretend like this is not even a real game. We're just going to take a knee. Fourth down, that's what I'm going to hit my moment. It just seemed like every fourth down – he couldn't do anything on first and th- first through third down, but fourth down. 
Justin Herbert is a beast, though. I mean, as soon as he got into the league, he has been absolutely dynamite. And I, I really am starting to get I'm starting to understand like the East Coast and West Coast biases that come with sports because he gets no attention. And there are quarterbacks on the East Coast and in middle America that are absolute butt. One of them plays in Cleveland, by the way. Um, and they get all the attention for being terrible. And Justin Herbert's just go out there like, yeah, I'm going to throw for like 4,900 yards and 35 touchdowns and get no press. Speaking of butt. You're, the quarterback that you're referring to in Cleveland, they pretty much announced that he's coming to Michigan. That's the stuff. So they're just gluttons for punishment then. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. But I want to switch topics for a moment uh, because, Tom, your meats got sliced and diced on Sunday. I'm going to be nice. Honestly, it was a thin slice. A very thin slice. Got it away. was contact lens thin. It, it goes, but you know it goes by fast and furious. Rules. It doesn't matter if you slice by an inch or ten inches. It doesn't matter. You got sliced. I, I want to share what the final score was. Gato, you won by one hundred and four point seventy eight. I lost by one hundred and four point fifty six. And so, to be fair, that was probably both of our worst outings in the last couple weeks. It was. I felt like we were talking to each other at like four or five o'clock, and it was like, does anybody actually want to win this thing? Real because nobody was nobody was scoring in week seventeen. Like it was it was a high school dance. Like nobody was gonna score. Um, Those one o'clock games were dreadfully boring. Yeah, they were putrid. And I live in a part of the country that felt inclined to show the Packers-Lions game, and the only reason to watch that game was to see the Lions play well. And, like, that's a who cares game of the week at that point. Dan Campbell's the man. He's a beast. He's going to eat your kneecaps, too. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I wanted wanted to pivot because today has just been a glorious day to be a Giants fan because Joe Fudge, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Joe Judge – A.K.A. Joe Pudge. I've never seen – I mean, I've been a Giants fan my entire life. And I – maybe I'm just, like, spoiled because I grew up watching, you know, the Coughlin era. And, you know, they were never great teams, but, you know, obviously were always tough and and usually snuck their way into the playoffs somehow. To watch Joe Judge give up on a drive and essentially do a QB sneak on second nine and third and nine. They, and then and then defended the goal line, wasn't it? Or near the goal line? They were they were, they were in their, they were deep in their own territory and then defends it and says, you know, we didn't want to give up a safety. Oh, we wanted good field position. We wanted the defense to have a shot. And he's basically said at certain points that like we don't go into every drive thinking like we need to score here. It's always it's something we take in field position. This man is living in the eighties when all you did was run the ball and play defense, and like that was that was it. And like everyone scored seventeen points. You're living in an era where if you don't score thirty points a game, you're not even in the conversation. The Giants overall, with Daniel Jones healthy, because like he tried to blame it on Daniel Jones being on you know getting getting hurt. When Daniel Jones was healthy, they were averaging seventeen points a game, which is putrid, horrible. Without the last six games, they were averaging under ten points a game, and. The problem is, like, you know, for anybody that was taking the position of, like, well, you need to give him a little bit more time. It's only the second year. The problem is, 
now that they pretty much rate them over the coals, they spent the entire last few weeks denying any reports that he was coming back, basically like kind of just putting out little tiny reports. You rate them over the coals. What kind of offensive coordinator is going to sign on to a Titanic that's sinking in, in the ocean? I mean, like the boat is going down. You're on a life raft because you're not on it, right? Who's going to volunteer to go onto the boat? No one. You you screwed him over completely. And I mean, the prospects are terrible. A bunch of the assistant coaches have already taken other jobs with other with college teams. So it was it was the endless result. They were they wanted to hire a general manager with a stipulation of like you have to work with Joe Judge. Absolute mindless by the Maris. They they find the most complicated way to control a process. And finally come to their senses today and do the appropriate thing, which is fire him after two days of speculation. So as an outsider of the Giants laughing stock that has been the way it is for the last five or six years, I am I'm interested in the ways in which Joe Judge has tried to pivot a lot of the responsibility for these games. Like he said, they're not like a clown show or whatever like that. And... You know, they they hired Jason Garrett only to fire Jason Garrett because he was not doing what they're supposed to. First off, that was a completely uninspired hiring anyway. Like nothing about Jason Garrett said like innovative play caller or anything like that. But the other thing that frustrates me is that this is a team that just doesn't want to make big, splashy hires because they don't want to be the big, splashy team for how many years? How many years did they say they were going to hire Bill Cowher? They've, they've gone down that road for so many years and like, yeah, we're going to get a guy who's a distinguished coach and all that. They went out and hired another Belichick fail son. It ended the way that they all have ended. Well, I'll attack that from, from two points because you made two different points there. The first point you made was Jason Garrett. Now, I will defend Joe Judge here. That was not Joe Judge's decision. That was John Merrill. No, who, you're right. I mean, Jason Garrett was a third-string quarterback for the Giants in the 90s. And apparently John Mara just has this affinity for him the same way like James Dolan has an affinity for Isaiah Thomas. We don't know why. Guy sucks, but he keeps bringing him around and loves him. So that was him. Didn't the Dolphins have the same thing for Garrett, too? And they were going to make him their offensive coordinator in, like, the 2005 or 2006. But then the Cowboys snatched him up. Like, there's this weird fascination with a mediocre quarterback who, like, has a baseline Madden playbook. He definitely throws the best grotto parties. Well, I will give Jason Garrett credit that he's he's just living in a different era. Back then, he actually signed on for Wade Phillips. Wade Phillips was struggling as the uh, Cowboys uh, head coach. He actually brought an offense that actually really, really helped them and actually kind of turned them around. Problem is, he never evolved. And, like, as you know, the NFL is like a living, breathing organism. Once you get figured out, then it's the next step is to figure out a new system that will essentially confuse defenses and rack up 40, 50 points a game. You're seeing with Patrick Mahomes this year. Patrick Mahomes is kind of gotten figured out. He's still one of the best players in the world. So he's able to rise above it. But he's not like the unstoppable Brett Favre machine that we've been seeing in the past. Um, your second point about big hires, you're right. John Mara has an ego complex, and he has been plucking at the George Young tree for too long now. And basically, he, I think it's in, if I can rationalize it, he essentially wants to be the person to save the team. 
So he doesn't want to hire somebody from a different organization because that's not the Giants way. We're not figuring out internally. And he can't take credit for when this team all of a sudden becomes better. Instead of plucking from somebody from like a smarter organization like the Ravens, the Bills, that have built their teams the right way, it has to be through the Giants. Finally, like I've looked at the list of candidates. They're all amazing. They're all from really good organizations. So I'm hopeful, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't want to be too rough. I actually am very pleased with what happened today from the Mara standpoint. Didn't fully expect them to do this. In fact, I expected us to go through another whole season of this, maybe even worse, because I think it's great that the Giants set a precedent this time. No head coach in this fumbling era has had had more than two years to get a team moving in the positive direction and i'm glad that they actually made that precedent to your point though gato like this is a team that has gone through a couple of coaches the last couple of years they have a quarterback who they can't figure out and q you mentioned this a couple of days ago they are like in the hellscape of salary cap problems right now where they've just they've signed too many guys that are too old and too expensive so a GM that's going to be going into that team needs to have full autonomy to do whatever they want. Well, at the same time, the head coach needs to also have the authority to cut a lot of these guys who are garbage, starting with Mike Glennon, the professional Red Lobster host, who <laughs> is just the worst person to like captain a football team who has made a ton of money off of being awful you know to, to touch on something gato just said that they've had you know because this is the third time in a row that they've hired a coach and fired him within two years mcadoo Shermer, now judge what you know what's really funny though is that the assistant general manager kevin abrams who is their self-professed cap guy right he handles the cap this guy has been around since the 90s and he's been the assistant general manager not only for judge not only under the previous general manager, Jerry Reese, but also under the previous general manager, Ernie Accorsi. He was clearly being groomed by Mara. And if the, if the fan outrage wasn't as substantial as it was, he was clearly going to give Kevin Abrams the, the job after this. Clearly going to give it to him. The fan outrage got so crazy. I mean, if you go on Giants Twitter or if you look at just... In the stadium, I mean, the amount of people wearing clown makeup in MetLife was incredible. Um, the fan outreach got to such a fever pitch that they had no choice. They had to move on. And they're finally doing it the right way. They're finally looking at people. Uh, they just announced that they're looking for the guy from the Ravens. They have the one guy for the Bills tomorrow. They're, they're finally starting to do things the right way. But, I mean, it's just sad that like it has to be an abusive relationship to get to this point. Well, that's the other thing, too, is one guy got fired and the other guy got to retire. That's the interesting component, too, because Dave Gettleman got this, like, happy retirement send off where they gave him the cake and the watch and, like, the high fives. Like, it's interesting. No, let's get started. Let's get into that because there is – I think there is more hate and frustration for Dave Gettleman than there is for Joe Judge, who is just Joe Fudge. Like, he's just some goon that was, like – pushing a mop around and Bill Belichick was like, Hey, you want to hold the kicking team? He's like, I like bread. Dave Gettleman is the ultimate fail son. And I mean, he's the fail son that John Mayer never had. The giants have been so short sighted. The fact that they're going to let this guy who's 
arguably the worst general manager in the history of the sport, blew millions upon millions of dollars last year on people that ultimately did nothing for them. And then he gets a send-off. And did I mean, they give him a Wii controller? <laughs> it's the best picture I've ever seen. I mean, this guy's on the sidelines. He's hugging people. He's got his kids there. He's got his like family there. And he's sitting in the luxury box. This guy shouldn't be allowed within 100 yards of MetLife. And they're, they're giving him a send-off like he's some kind of fucking national hero. It's, it is absolutely insane. Not to mention, I mean, like, the, 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 the process has always been flawed. They always usually either fire the general manager and keep the coach or fire the coach and keep the general manager. 2017 season was a disaster. They finally got rid of everybody. And I felt like, okay, this is going to be where they finally do what they're doing now. They interviewed four people. Mark Ross, who was the already charge of player personnel, he got fired, by the way, shortly after Dave Gettleman took over. Kevin Abrams, the cap guy. Dave Gettleman, who just gotten fired in Carolina. And Louis Riddick is the only person that was the outside of the organization. He works for ESPN. That was the net that they cast. Four people, three of which already worked for the Fed. And Louis Riddick probably didn't get a lot of pull either. Because I remember yeah. them I remember them talking to him after the fact. And he's like, yeah, I mean, it. They wanted to go in their direction. They have their own philosophy. And, you know, it's interesting that I think the Giants for a long time have tried to portray themselves as like one of the elite NFL owners or like one of the elite NFL ownership teams that they really have it all together. And they're the model of consistency, very much in the same way the Steelers try to portray that as well. Like we don't fire coaches. We just work with them and get them better. But if you think about it, though, there's like a handful of years that the Giants were super, obviously Super Bowl winning franchise. But at the same time, like outside of that, they are not a good team. Outside of the two Super Bowls they won with Eli Manning, I don't think they had a winning record for any of those years. I'll go. I'll take it back further, Tom. 1979, Mm -hmm. they hired somebody named George Young. George Young was the vice president of player personnel for the Miami Dolphins before that. Before that, in 1979, they had 17 straight losing seasons. And if you want to know why, it's because Wellington Mara, John Mara's father, the original owner of the New York Giants, hired his buddies. He hired his cousins. He hired his nephews to run things. 1979 rolls around, and Pete Rozelle, the then commissioner of the NFL, told John Mara, you need to stop. You need to hire, you're going to hire George Young. He's very well respected. George Young had just gotten inducted to the Hall of Fame a couple years ago. The next year, he drafted Phil Simms. Years after that, he drafts Lawrence Taylor, Harry Carson, Carl Banks. I can go on. He then hires Ernie Acorsi, who took over took over for him. John Mara, Wellington Mara, they get no credit because they don't deserve any credit. They were forced into the best hire that they ever. And and I think they get a lot of credit because they're one of the older teams as well, yeah. too, right? Like, they've yeah. been around for a really long time, so everyone thinks, like, oh, they must be doing it right. Like, unless the NFL takes the team away from you or you sell it, you're not going to leave. You're not just going to walk away from it because it's a cash cow. John Mara is well-respected within the owner circles. So it's not like he's treated as a joke either, which is all that surprising because, like, these are all, like, smart football guys. You would think they would be able to detect it. Like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I don't think you can go much further than the the article that was put out by ESPN that talked about both the Giants and the Jets and how much of a joke of both of those franchises have been over the last couple of years. I feel like 
once that article came out, the narrative around the Giants really changed because that was when the Gettleman like retirement stuff started to heat up. I always get apprehensive when an owner is like, oh no, we have full every intention of keeping this person. When it's officially denied, you know that there's something there. Yeah. It's not official until it was officially denied. I would, I would argue, by the way, the Jets are in a much better position than the Giants. They have a pretty decent young roster. I like their coach a lot. I think their general manager is well-respected. And they've got about like $60 million in cap space to, to work with next year. So they are a legitimate team on the rise to where the Giants are, depending on what they do next, is going to determine a big chunk of their future. Um, again, I said cautiously optimistic. But plenty of time for John Mayer to screw it up. Yeah. I'll tell you what, man. It doesn't look good for the Belichick tree. I will mm-hmm. say, though, Brian Flores is part of the Belichick tree. And I think what Miami did to him was disgusting. He shown, and it, and I think it's it shows by how bad the outrage was with the Miami Dolphins players. He he did a, I mean, I know he started one and seven, I think one and six or one and seven. But, like, he finished the season nine. Those players rallied around him. They played tough. He had a really bad quarterback situation. I think they did him real dirty. And the one thing that I would say is that there's more to coaching. Like, you just asked the question about Joe Judge, right? Like, how is a smart football guy like Mara suckered by someone like Joe Judge? I think that's because we see only that Sunday presentation. What we don't see is the backroom conversations between the owners and the head coaches. And that was the Achilles heel for Brian Flores. Did not get along with his GM or his head coach. There was a lot of problems regarding he demanded a lot from everyone that was around him and the people that decide whether or not you have a job or not spoke. This is a clubhouse. You know what I mean? This is Yeah, it's interesting because I, I had heard some rumors that like like you were saying that there was a power struggle between him and Chris Greer. So it makes sense. But I, I think they're going after John Harbaugh. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Stephen Ross, the owner, um, has long been a big fan of John Harbaugh, and there's rumors that he might be open to leaving Michigan for the right opportunity. I still think the Raiders make the most sense for him, but I could see the Dolphins making a pretty strong push for him. But, I mean, fire a winning coach like that is just – it's such such a bad precedent. So I'm of two minds of Brian Flores firing only because – it was two years in a row where they went on very long losing streaks. Now, granted, they had an injured quarterback for both of those years, but they've also had, they've gone through coordinators quite a bit. I think they've gone through like three offensive coordinators or something to that effect. But at the same time, though, I don't think that you can fire a guy had an injured quarterback two years in a row, had two injured quarterbacks two years in a row, and then it was able to turn both seasons around with with decent finishes. Like I would rather finish the season strong than finish it hot, because you can, at least you can ride some of that momentum into the off season, and it would generate interest amongst free agents and rookies want to be there, and coaches that you're going to hire are interested. But I think the problem with the firing of Brian Flores and the firing of Joe Judge and Matt Nagy getting fired too. I'm going to put Mike Zimmer as an outlier because he's the longest tenured one of all of them. And he was actually a pretty decent coach. It just didn't work there. I think the NFL, for all of the data and all the analytics and all the numbers and all the scouting, it's still very much just a, a generic job interview. And I think the NFL, of all of the coaching, hiring and firing processes, that is the most basic one about like who is a hot name who looks good at the end of the season rather than who actually knows their shit. 
And you look at a lot of like guys that have gone from an offense coordinator to head coach and just kind of came out of nowhere. They also get a lot of credit for what their players did, like broken plays that turned into 80 yard touchdowns. Like you didn't scheme that. Stop acting like you did. A lot of guys ride that wave like, oh, yeah, I was involved with this offense and we were third in the league in offensive yardage. And it's like, right, but you weren't the one doing it. And you it's can't scheme. Of, right. You can't. Yeah, you had Peyton Manning and Demarius Thomas and all these fantastic players. Like, if you don't do well, I'm concerned. And I don't think NFL owners and I don't think NFL GMs have really figured out a way to properly vet people outside of like, Hey, you uh, you were coached by this guy, and you were on this guy's staff, and you went to this school. I really think it's just like let's hope we get this right, unless there's like an absolute shoe in guy. And quite frankly, you don't know when those are going to happen, and they're few and far between. There's too many variables. I mean, like you know, you talk about scheme, and then you talk about is the guy going to put in the work to be able to you know outwork the the opposing coach. I wanted to make one more point on Brian Flores, though, because this is what infuriates me about the NFL. So Brian Flores gets fired. Whether or not you agree, disagree, okay. Sure. I, you, can, you, you made points, by the way, on both sides, and I can agree with you wholeheartedly that, yes, they went on losing streaks that were unacceptable. Well, let's be real here for a second. 2020 draft. Pick number five is the Miami Dolphins. Pick number six is the Chargers. Pick number five is Tua Tagovailoa. Fine quarterback, a little undersized, and I mean, let's be real here. Never really the most impressive, impressive arm or anything like that. They passed on Justin Herbert, and if they well, had taken was, Justin Herbert, it may have been a completely different story for them. Well, there's also that whole. I think that's its own narrative too. Like teams were forced to take him because there was the whole tank for Tua thing and what he did in the national championship game, where they pulled Jalen Hurts out, who, come to find out, seems to be a better quarterback than Tua is. The NFL had boxed itself into a corner where somebody had to take him high only because the hype was so much that if you passed on him and he ended up being good, you were going to lose your job guaranteed. I agree, but the guy who made that decision is still there. And the guy who was forced to coach those players. That's a good point. Fuck Chris Greer. He's the second house. Gatto, any thoughts? Particularly about this, I'm, I, I feel bad for Brian Flores. He'll land on his feet, though. Someone will pick him up. Um, he'll be doing something. He's he's still got a career ahead of him. He's already uh, interviewing with Chicago, which is another that team that just cleared house. You know, GM, head coach, out the door. Between Joe Judge and Matt Nagy, who is most likely to end up on Alabama's coaching staff next year? Well, I don't think Nagy has uh, Alabama coaching connections, and Joe Judge is a total brown nose. So I'm sure he'll go crying to Daddy Saban, and he'll get. He'll, he'll he'll let him clean up the toilets after the game's over or something. Pick up the towels off the floor. He's gonna make him hand wash them with one of those old like like washing grates. It's just the scene from Forrest Gump where he's scrubbing the toilet or scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush, <laughs> telling some other coach like all the food that he got to eat in the Giants cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> They delivered me coffee to my, my office every day. That's great, Joe. You missed the spot. On. We had meatball subs. We had spaghetti and meatballs. We had meatball soup. We had Italian wedding soup with meatballs. <laughs> Pepperoni pizza. Anchovy pizza with meatballs. <laughs> we had ruffles, Tostitos. Hershey's Crunch Bar. Reese's. 
We got to eat apples, bananas, raspberries, blackberries. Thank God they don't have to take a bus to any school because I'm sure they would have just thrown his ass out in the middle of Alabama somewhere. Like we're done. If for anybody who's listening at home, if if you want to hear, if you want to hear something completely grating, listen to a Joe Judge press conference and carefully listen for the word right there. You won't notice it unless somebody says it. He says it about a hundred times per press conference. Right there, right there. You look right there. We do it right there. I could not. I I didn't realize how many times he said it. This guy can't stop fucking saying that. You know what's disappointing though? He didn't say right there. It'd be a different situation if he said that. I would have given him a four year extension if he said right there. (laughs) And John Maris in the background, and Joe Judge is like, you know, we missed that play over there. (laughs) John Maris is right there. He breaks character one time. He's like, yeah, right over there. Sorry, what was that? Oh, right there. Excuse me, lost my accent for a second. <laughs> Where is Joe Judge from? Is he from like this planet, or was he like grown in like a test tube in the men's bathroom in Gillette Stadium? He, he was made in a lab, and he was nursed to uh, full grown by Nick Saban. He he uh, he fed him. Um, I don't know. I, I don't. I honestly don't know. I think I think he might he's, be from the south. He, no, he's he actually from Philly. He's from Philly. Yeah, he's from Philly. Fucking. Philadelphia Eagles plant that got hired Born and raised right there in Philadelphia. <laughs> he was born right over there. <laughs> it, it disappoints me though, there was a guy who was a coach who was the most interesting man on the planet for a very long time and his name was Jim Tom Sula. And it makes me sad that Jim Tom Sula now has a competitor of the weirdest person in the NFL. Judge, unfortunately is in one of one of those guys that I guess he grew up following all like the great head coaches and for him that style was always like being a hardo and like talking about discipline and talking about like execution and then like you watch the games and you're like I don't think this guy knows how to play football like he just knows buzzwords and he's just like he was playing he was playing mad lips with like football terms and was just like that's my speech for the Sunday and it's just a lot of like it's just a lot of buzzwords and you got you don't really know what you're doing because like how many times do I have to watch this guy in somebody's territory like, I mean it's fourth and one and you're at the opponent's 20 and you're down by like 10 points and he kicks the field I mean if you even bother to look at the numbers overwhelmingly will tell you to go for it. He just he just doesn't get it. He's like stuck in 1983. Meanwhile, you have another guy in the conference in Nick Sirianni who looks like a guy who's like walking in with like a Ladanian Tomlinson jersey and a sideways visor with cargo shorts and he's trying to get you to buy him Natty Light. If you watched Nick Sirianni's original press conference when he got hired, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I thought he I thought he was going to be a disaster because he was just bumbling over every single word and he just was saying things that were nonsensical with the NFL record dead cap that they had by getting rid of Carson Wentz. Team that's only okay, they're in the playoffs. Yeah. Because they were able to adapt. Speaking of playoffs, I want to I want to get a feeling of where you guys are sitting as far as like maybe a Super Bowl prediction. Mm. You don't have or, to tell me who's going to win. Uh, I just who are the two teams that you think are kind of left at the end of it. It pains me to do this. It pains me. It pains me. It pains me to do this. I'm picking the Dallas Cowboys for the NFC, um, and they've been. They've been questionable in some games, and there's some games where they don't show up. But when that offense is firing in all cylinders, 
Warriors. They are unstoppable. And uh, I just, I just, I see them catching fire in the playoffs. That run game, CeeDee Lamb. I mean, even even Schultz at tight end, who is just like I came out of nowhere. Um, I, I and with that defense with Michael Parsons, who I think not only should be defensive rookie of the year, should be in the conversation for defensive player of the year. Um, another guy Giants passed on, by the way. I think they, I think they make it. And on the AFC side, I'm going with the Buffalo Bills. I, I I love the way they play defense. Josh Allen is an up and coming superstar, and I think they I think they have a pretty easy road, kind of starting out with the Patriots. I don't think the Patriots are going to give them too much trouble uh, to the Super Bowl pretty easily. So, Tom Gatto, you going Packers for the NFC? Uh, they've just dominated pretty much the entire entire season. They're solid. They they didn't waver. There there was no faltering in what they've been doing. And if you look at the Cowboys in the last couple weeks, this is that time of year everyone gets nervous down in Dallas. This is when they falter, right? And when they played the Cardinals, this is them playing a playoff caliber team, and this was the result. And I just don't actually think they have what it takes. They're playing two games against the Giants every year. They're playing Washington two times a year. Six of your potential wins, and they weren't all wins this year. Come from a division like that, probably are smoke and mirrors. I think the Dallas. I think Dallas has like pretty much gotten to the point where they have to prove they can actually do it. Right, I agree with you. Agreed. Yeah, too many times they've been play like Tarzan, and during the regular season, play like Jane in the playoffs. So I agree. Prescott, Zeke, these are amazing talents. Um, that that they're they're winners. They they actually are winners, which I don't think Tony Romo is a leader back then. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of big, a lot of big game snafus. Love the yeah, guy as an answer. Yeah, a lot of big game snafus for Tony Romo. I like the Bills a lot too. I'm rooting for the Raiders because that would be really cool. Tennessee doing some things here, and I know you guys might disagree on this one, but Derrick Henry slated to come back, giving the Titans the boost that they need for push through the playoffs. To be honest, in the end, it doesn't matter what happens in the AFC because the Packers are probably going to be the ones that take it. That defense is surprising. I mean, yeah, the Packers have a good. The Packers do have an underrated defense to go with. Uh, you know, obviously, don't even have to say how good their offense is. Tennessee, I, I think I'm just maybe jaded because I had A.J. Brown in multiple fantasy leagues, and he was just a total fucking bummer this year. But, yeah, I mean, they, they have held the ship together pretty well. So, Tom, how do you feel about uh, how you feel about the playoffs? I don't know. This one's hard, and I say that because, like, there is no clear-cut dominant team. I mean, people can make the argument that the Packers are that dominant team, but at the end of the day – they don't have any kind of advantage because they play at home because ultimately it's still cold for them. And I think that's kind of overplayed in the sense that everyone says, oh, it's impossible to win at Lambeau Field in December or January. Like the Packers lost to Lambeau Field last year. Um, and the Bills and Patriots are going to know exactly what it's like to play in Lambeau because it's going to be four degrees on Saturday, I think, when they play. I am really interested to see what the Bengals do. I think they came into the end of the year real hot. If you look at all of the numbers for their team, like their offense is pretty, pretty badass. Joe Burrow didn't even play the last game of the year. I think he finished with 4,600 yards and like 34 touchdowns. Joe Mixon had a really good year. Um, and they've put numbers on people. I don't know how far they're going to go, but I think they're definitely an interesting team to watch. 
As much as it pains me to say, I'd like to see the Bills go far too because I think they have enough good players on their team where they deserve something good to happen. NFC, on the other hand, like, does anybody trust the Rams? I wouldn't trust them with a sandwich right now. Matthew Stafford, 0-3 in the playoffs. This this was a team that I had high expectations for going into the season. Everybody had high expectations for you know? them. They just don't, like... They're boring. They're boring. They are they are one of the most boring high volume offenses I've ever seen. Like then you know you talk about the greatest show on turf, which was also the Rams. And I don't I don't trust Stafford to take them home. That defense has weeks where they just they look like a fraud. And I mean they could be the team that gets that gets hot at the right time. But I mean I just I don't see it right now. I'm, I'm wondering them. I'm wondering though, and it was really interesting to watch this in the game on Sunday how mad the defense would get at the offense. And I'm wondering if that has a lot to do with it. And this might have just been creative editing, but they were showing a lot of shots of Jalen Ramsey, like getting real chippy with people, especially coaches on the sideline and shaking his head and like negative body language about like how bad the offense was doing. And it looked like basically any time that Sean McVay was in like a bit of a pinch, it's just like, well, let's just throw the ball, ball like 45 yards down the field and see what happens. Cooper, are you available? Didn't Jalen Ramsey punch one of his teammates the other week? He did, yeah. And all that to be said, I don't trust them. I don't think the Cardinals are that good either. I think Kyler Murray is a little overhyped. I think Chris and- Kingsbury is way overrated as coach. Yeah, he got fired from a job and was going to take the offensive coordinator job at USC before the Cardinals were like, oh, let's get him. I mean, you talk about the definition of failing upwards. He gets fired from Texas Tech. He gets offered the USC offensive coordinator job. He accepts that, gets the the Arizona Cardinals job offered him, quits USC within like days, and then takes the Cardinals job. He literally got fired from a shitty college and got a head coaching job with the number one pick and got Kyler Murray, who's been dying to coach ever since like Murray entered the high school system. That's that's the natural law, though, right? You rise to the level of your incompetence. Got to give him credit, man. That man secured the bag. He knew exactly what he was doing. So props to him. Uh, um, you mentioned the Bengals, though. Must I be love, a great interview. I love Joe Judge. Can learn yeah, yeah, Joe Judge can learn a lot. That's where he learned it from. <laughs> I, I want. Can't I, teach love, though. <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, Tom, I am with you though on the Bengals. Like, I mean, I love Joe Burrow. I love Chase. I love that whole offense. I am rooting for the Bengals to make it far. I really hope they make it all the way. I'm just not sure of the defense but i mean really with that offense they can they can hang with anybody so listen to this this is their top three receivers jamar chase 81 receptions 1455 yards t higgins 74 catches 1091 tyler boyd 67 catches 828 yards i mean they cleaned up at the end of the year when a lot of teams were just kind of mailing it in, they won all the games they were supposed to. They lost against Cleveland, but Joe Burrow also didn't play in that game, and I don't think a lot of their other guys did either. Joe Mixon, he got the Omicron variant, and Samaj P. Ryan, who was on my team, my fantasy team, who I started, who is the number two running back on the team. I don't think the bus picked him up to go to the stadium. I think he was. Uh, I think he was at home sampling some of Boar's Head's finest meats. So I'm wondering if there was like a rookie of the year moment where they locked him in like the utility closet, and he's just, "Damn, let's go, team!" 
I mean, I, 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 I guess they were trying to, I guess they were just going fully in the tank for that game and just protecting everybody. Cause I mean, I guess I, I think the, the fear of made have been with, with P Ryan is that if Mixon wasn't ready to go by the playoffs, they wanted him a hundred percent healthy to be ready for that game. So that's fair. That makes sense. Sucks for playoffs. You don't got to do the take the week off, man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're playing, they're, they're, they're playing in Ohio. It's going to be 25 degrees. The Raiders play in Vegas in a dome. I mean, they could win that game. And regardless of what happens with the Patriots-Bills game, like the weather in either one of those locations is no different than being in Cleveland. Props to the Raiders, though. I mean, having to fire your racist head coach midway through the season. And, then, and, weren't, and by the way, weren't doing that well. If I bless my memory, they weren't really even playing that well when he was there and end up sneaking into the playoffs. Derek Carr is one of the most underrated quarterbacks in the league, bar, bar none. And they were trying to get rid of him every year. Like, yep. they're trying mm-hmm. to, like, they brought in Marcus Mariota, the glass man, to compete with him. Like, why? <laughs> the glass man. <laughs> like, that dude gets hurt, like, if you walk past him too quickly. Oregon legend you're talking about right there. The problem is consistency, right? Like, he he's streaky. I'm glad they got to where they are, man. What a game. It was a weird one because here they are. They actually had the fate of not only themselves, they had the fate of the Steelers and the Chargers at their disposal at the end of that game. They could have taken a knee and said, see you later for the Chargers, you know. But I, obviously they wanted, to, they wanted to have the Steelers in the playoffs because the Steelers are probably the weakest team in there right now. Yeah, they yeah. got in on the skin of their teeth. But I will say, though, the Raiders head coach deserves to be the coach of the year. I think there is an argument to be made with everything that went down with John Gruden. And John Gruden was a $10 million a year coach. To be Rich Bisaccia and be the guy that came in to replace Gruden and making a fraction of that money and get into the playoffs your first go around, I think, one, why are we paying John Gruden $10 million? And then two, why wasn't this guy the coach? Well, because John Gruden writes great emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know, working a corporate job, I always get John Gruden to proofread my emails first. And uh, I, 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 I tell him, you know, go for it. Just punch it up a little bit if you feel like you want to add some colorful language to it. There's a new app. Where you can grudenize your emails before you send them. <laughs> I will say though, Rich Pasternak, I, I, Tom, I agree with you hundred percent. But I think that the the real person that should have took over for the Raiders was John Gruden's son, Deuce Gruden. And if you haven't not seen Deuce Gruden, please do yourself a favor and Google him. He's incredible. Hit him with the Deuce. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, did we ever? Where did we land on the John Gruden versus Bill Belichick? offspring boxing match. You know, Deuce has got the size, he's got the muscles and all that, but, like, you look at uh, Bill Belichick's son, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, he looks like... He'll Steven. Rip apart with his, Steven. P.H. P.H. Steven. Oh, P.H. Oh, yeah. He looks like he'll rip you apart with his teeth. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I, my money's on Belichick. Yeah, this dude looks like he had a haircut with a bowie knife, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's not a I just want to know, like, what did they put on their resume? I came out of my father's ball bag. It's an <laughs> accomplishment. If, if you're if you're son of Belichick, there's no way you're not getting a job in New England. I mean, all right. They, so I'm on, I'm on the Wikipedia yeah, but page. He could right be now. sweeping things in in like the stadium in Gillette. Like, why did? 
Listen, Steve Steve Belichick has a mullet. He does. Steven. Steven. I I think it's Steve. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna call him Steve. We're we're buddies like that. So. (laughs) So I'm on the Wikipedia page for Stephen Ph. Belichick. He's got a Wikipedia. He does. Uh, he played lacrosse at the Rivers School in Western Massachusetts and was an all-league honorable mention selection in his senior year. Great. Another lacrosse kid. Um, that he then attended Rutgers, horrible decision, where he continued to play lacrosse as a defenseman and a long stick midfielder from 2008 through 2011. He also played Rutgers football under Greg Schiano in 2011 as a long snapper. And honestly, they needed as many fucking bodies on that team as they could find. So it does not shock me. He's, he's incredible. I mean, the bullet just really sells you. This man, this man is all business in the front, party in the back. Real legend. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that this is an individual that went to the Weston School. I'm sorry, the Rivers School in Massachusetts, which is a school that has an endowment of $22.3 million. And I don't think they have a lot. Nobody does it like him. Mm -mm. All right. So, Tom, just to kind of circle back on you, you you kind of threw the Raiders. I think you threw the Raiders out there and you threw the Bengals out there. You're going with Bengals. All right. So you got Bengals and you got... And the NFC got... You know what? Because Brady's going to go into, like, serial killer mode to Patrick Bateman mode, I think it's going to be the Buccaneers again. Yeah, I, I, mm. I, might, be, I might be sleeping on him um, a little bit, but I don't know. Something seems off. When you're, when you're losing to the Jets with 40 seconds left, I have, to, I have to start, you know, questioning if something's wrong. That offense, though, is speed up right now. There's still a lot of guys that are injured or nagging injuries, even if they return. Hard for a playoff run for them. It's it's going to be one of the more challenging ones for Brady, I think. I would agree. I, I think this is probably the hardest year out of all of them, just because the amount of guys that have been hurt. By the way, I'm putting my money on Deuce, 100%. Big D. <laughs> Big D. Deuce competed in Belarus as a fucking powerlifter. So he's put in the reps, all right? I, I will say, though, the, the problem for the Bucks is that they're going to face Philadelphia in the first round. And... Again, pains me to say this as a Giants fan. I think Philadelphia is that one team that nobody wants to face right now. Uh, really, they they run the ball. They run the ball at such an effective rate. They're the number one rush offense in the NFL. As you know, when you get into the playoffs, you win by running the ball. Like it's just it's it's cool. They're hard controlling the clock. And I mean, their defense is underrated. It, you know, with Fletcher Cox in the middle and all that, they they can get a pass rush going. So, and Brady Brady has always struggled. I'm actually going to make the call right now. I'm taking the Philadelphia Eagles this weekend over the Tampa Bay Bucks. I think Tom Brady's his first round exit. Put it mm-hmm. on the board. And call me a dummy next week, but I'm I'm, I'm calling it. I I don't see them going any further, but. Anybody else got an upset? Steelers over the Chiefs, anybody? I don't know how much of an upset this is, but I do think the Bills will beat the Patriots. I think the Bills will beat the Patriots. And I know that might not be an upset on paper per se, but it will be for Bills fans and Patriot fans alike. We've talked about who we think is going to make it there, but based on fans, who would we like to see in the Super Bowl? I want Bills Mafia in that Super Bowl. That would be amazing. 100%. 100%. I want to I want to oh. see people going through t- tables on fire. So, would we want Bills Eagles? No. I I mean I don't want I don't want I don't want the Eagles, Eagles again for a while, man. I can't, that, I can't Those are the only like big time wild fan bases though. Yeah, there there will be murders uh, 
events. Listen, I know the Super Bowl is mainly a corporate event now, but if it's the Bills and the Eagles, people get murdered. I think it was a fashion event. I got to be honest. (laughs) I would actually be really excited for a Bills-Eagles Super Bowl because if you think about it, those are two teams that have been kind of down and out the last couple of years, and they have not been around very often, or they haven't been in the playoffs very often in recent years. And the Eagles just won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. They did, yeah. and then they were butt after that. That's okay. Good. Good. I hope they stayed butt for a long time. I mean, you're just mad. Had- I'm very mad. <laughs> I am a fan of the worst team over the last five years. No one is worse than the Giants over the last five years. I'm fucking bitter. And I will, you know what? It's okay. I'll say this, though. If there is a Buccaneers-Cardinals-NFC game, that needs to be at, like, the early bird happy hour time, like around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and they need to serve dinner because that's, like, the retirement home game. The average age in the stands is 78 years old. <laughs> Everyone gets in with coupons. Early bird specials. <laughs> Yeah, this game is going to be played at 11 a.m. This this uh, the Super Bowl is now uh, sponsored by Bennigan's and their early bird special. <laughs> yeah, second mouse podcast. We'll be uh, we'll be having two commercials. Look out for us. We got Dwayne of, Rock Johnson. One of them is just going to be a repurposed cars for kids commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the second. The second one is Dwayne the Rock Johnson telling you about the uh, the wonderful product that is Boar's Head uh, Deli Meats. And we'll just hack the system and throw our logo in there. Brilliant. Yep. Yep. Brought to you by Doctors Without Borders Without Doctors. <laughs> Talked about football for a while, so maybe let's uh, talk about something a little bit more lighthearted. You guys heard some shit with uh, Fauci and fucking Rand Paul? Rand Paul. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I haven't been following that. Dude, these two need to go be in the alleyway and just fucking duke it out. So Fauci, he's he's claiming he's received death threats because of the stuff that Rand Paul's been saying. Are we talking about Rand Paul, the guy who was beat up by his neighbor, Rand Paul? Is that the same? The Rand very Paul same Rand about? Paul. Yes. Got it. Yeah, it sounds like a sounds like a great guy. So um, I'm sure he he would never. Good old Rand would never do anything to make sure that somebody got hurt. There's no way. On. Paul's re-election website, there's a section called Fire Dr. Fauci. It's it's kind of funny to me that they make Dr. Fauci out. I mean, like, I, I, I don't really have much of an opinion of Dr. Fauci. I think people kind of latched on to him because it's a scary time, and it's good to have somebody that is, I mean, he's not an epidemiologist, but, like, you know, a, a guy going on TV and kind of telling us that it's going to be okay, who's in a powerful position, um, but the, the fear mongering of that done by him, like to where they pretty much tried to turn him into the devil, is is really fascinating shit. Um, I, I just, I guess, I guess it's just good for fundraising. I mean, uh, it's the only thing I can kind of take from it. It's easy to create a boogeyman, especially with somebody who's in a position of authority. And again, like I think. The challenge with living in a major issue or a major pandemic like we're doing right now is that the science is very fluid based on what the most recent study is. I mean, we had 100 years to study 
the, the flu pandemic from 1918. We had 70 or 80 years to study the polio outbreak that had occurred. And then a couple, and then a hundred years to study the tuberculosis consumption pan, pandemic that hit the United States for since the 18th century. So a lot of that science is pretty much locked in and we figured out where all those things have started. But I, it's very interesting to see um, just the general like, resentment towards Fauci because I think also too he represents like the potential of you know all of your rights being taken away and that's something that's very common to see on the hot take industrial complex that is Fox News. He, he took that he, he became the face right I don't think he even was aware of what he was undertaking when he agreed to become the face of this he, and I don't even know if he agreed to it he just started showing up on TV a part of me is aren't all the politicians kind of you know using him as for political gain it's an interesting point though Gato because honestly you're right he's being weaponized on both sides he is the hero of the of liberals and like, he can do no wrong. He's never wrong, despite the fact that, like, I do have some legitimate beefs with him. Um, last March... He's had retractions he, left and right, man. Well, he, he said that masks weren't necessary at the start of the pandemic, and he then clarified later, well, like, oh, well, they were, but I didn't want, you know, people going out and buying masks so that hospitals weren't going to buy them. So, but, like, you undermine public trust when you do something like that. You ultimately yeah. give ammo to people who seek to weaponize anti you know vaccine uh you know anti-mask stuff that like oh here's Fauci saying that masks don't work and then two months later he's saying that they do work you're you're just giving them ammo and i understand why he did it but like it's it's, it's not really setting a good precedent but to where he's a hero of the left he's a villain of the right and uh it's just uh, yeah it becomes almost like it's more it's, it's not handling the serious issue that we are facing and it's more just about fundraising and you know, owning the other side, essentially. I think the problem, too, is that an individual like him, he's not a politician, right? Like, he didn't get right. into this for political gain or to have leverage over opponents. He's a member of the medical community that's here to better society. And a lot of the decisions that they've had to make were based on political ramifications or like you don't want to upset the public because they'll go into terrified and who knows what could happen then. So we need to be very measured on what we say when in reality, the medical professionals are like, well, we should really be doing this instead. And sometimes I'm really terrified. Other times I care less. Yeah, but. I, I, I just find it interesting, though, that Rand Paul is the one who's doing the criticizing of all people he should know because he's an ophthalmologist by trade. But being an ophthalmologist compared to somebody who works with diseases and things like that is like saying, I cook barbecue, therefore I know how to do French cooking. Um, they're two very different things and they're very, very complex things. I'm sure being an ophthalmologist is a very difficult trade and a part of the medical field. But at the same time, what Fauci is doing, like there's components of that that's also very challenging and complex and specific to what he's doing. And I would hope that a medical professional of a branch of medicine would understand, like, I am out of my depth and it doesn't matter how many medical journals I read. I still didn't do this for a living. I mean, Rand Paul's just a strange bird to me. 
I feel like he took all of the worst parts of what his father was saying and just like let them grow in an easy bake oven. And now he's just dishing it to the world. An easy bake oven that's racist. <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny because, yeah, an op- he's an ophthalmologist. He's a fucking eye doctor. And, like, I'm again, it's a very difficult job, I'm sure. A lot of stuff goes into it. You have to go to school for it. But, like, you know why they're doing this, though. It's pretty, it's pretty transparent that this is clearly they're trying to undermine COVID because they don't want 2020 again. They don't want people voting by mail. It's, a, it's another way of trying to stop people from voting. And, you know, Biden today. God, you were telling me earlier, Biden had a, a, a couple things going on with uh, voting rights. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just another clear path of the GOP trying to, you know, trying to stop people from voting. Biden um, props to him for throwing his weight behind reforming uh, the filibuster, getting rid of it. So the only way that they're going to see any progress on the voting rights bills. You know, it's funny because Biden was actually speaking today about uh, the voting rights bill in Atlanta. A lot of, um, and a name that won't be there is uh, Stacey Abrams. But you know what, though? uh, Tom, I'm going to let you go in a second. But I I, want to pull back on your props to Biden because... You know, he, it's, it's proverbial Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football too often with him that he says something great and it sounds like, oh, yeah, it sounds like he's going to take heat on it. And then it just gets lost in the ether two months later. Um, you know, the home test. He said he was going to send millions of home tests by January. Haven't heard anything. So uh, and that turned into your insurance will cover a certain amount if you buy a home test in the store, which you can't do. Which you so, can't find. Yeah, but what I what I saw was that insurers are going to actually just saw this. Insurers are going to have to cover eight tests per month. Yeah, if you can find them, if you can buy them, yeah. But yeah. like, well, you can he said he was going to order now and get some tests. Just go to Seven Eleven; they got them. Uh, you have to go around to the back, but they're there. I feel like yeah. this. In my criticism of the Biden administration, is I feel like they are responding to all their emails two months late. Like they are the ones that had their email message up for all of like the winter break. And now they're just starting to get back to you. And it's like, doesn't matter. Like the deadline is passed and all of these things that you said was going to happen are not happening. And my frustration with Biden is the folks that got him elected are the ones that are needing him the most right now. And The unfortunate part is when you choose to take the middle ground on every issue, you end up being able to solve nothing. And I think that's one thing that honestly, both Trump and Obama deserve some credit for. They were willing to to take some chances. And if they needed to lose, they would lose. But at least, you know, where they stood. Trump on some of the more extreme issues and some of the more radical ones, but Obama was willing to also do that on a different side of the spectrum. Problem with, or I'm sorry, with Obama, he was able, willing to do that. But with Biden, the problem is, is they're not willing to really take a stand on anything. And they're just hoping that like Kristen Cinema and um, Joe Manchin are going to like have the ghost of Christmas past come to their house and show them what their future looks like. And they're going to change everything. You know, it's so funny well, that you say that because from a purely political standpoint, you, you're right. He pulls way too many punches. And the question you have to ask yourself, is he pulling them because he is scared of the blowback or is it just because 
he's a moderate Democrat that doesn't really believe in the things he's saying. He's doing it because he got elected on it. So, well, Tom, you're you're right. It's like we're back to square one, right? Like this is why Trump got elected in the first place was we had too many politicians trying to play the middle ground to keep as many slices of the vote in their favor. 100%. And Trump came in and revolutionized that by saying, I just need these really passionate wedges of the vote. Fuck everybody else, right? And I think, you know, Biden is falling into that career politician trap. Those are the toxic words that kind of were the death for Hillary in, in that election. And, you know, he's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I also I think too they they rely too heavily on public sentiment, right? And yeah. a lot of their decision making is based on like polling numbers and what they're seeing in general trends and stuff like that. But in reality, you can't necessarily rely on the week to week or the day to day opinions of the American people because frankly, we are such a fickle population. It's impossible to figure out whether we're like, we're gonna go to Subway one day or we're going to throw rocks at the Subway headquarters. <laughs> it's, it's like the curse of the Democrats because they care too much about the individual, but at the same time, like they still need to lead yeah, and they care about, they they care about at the same time. They care about optics. They care about how they're perceived. And like, as long as they get a round of applause by, you know, liberals, they're like, yeah, we're good. We don't have to do anything further. It's very, it's very for show. And there's not a lot of substance to it. And yeah, like you were saying, like you, you ride the, you can only ride the fence so long before you get splinters in your ass. And I mean, I'll do you one better. It's not even the round of applause anymore. It's the likes and retweets on Twitter that they're oh really aiming for now. And honestly, I've backed away from Twitter because that's not an actual place. Like nothing actually ever gets done on Twitter. It's just people just yelling into the ether. Granted, we do have a Twitter account. It's the Second Mouse Podcast. Please follow us and give us a like. Pug, 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 Mad pug. respect. It's it's interesting that we've gotten into this topic. But I do want to get to an article that I saw earlier this week about how China is actually documenting public sentiment and they are changing information on their network, their internet networks, to redefine what public sentiment is. So they are eliminating a lot of negative information out there and they're only pushing positive information. So. They have turned into the People's Republic of Good Vibes Only. And isn't that okay? So, isn't that isn't that exactly what they've been doing for years? I mean, I guess what they've been doing for years is that if it's negative, they just remove it completely. Yes. Now they're promoting the positive, is what you're saying? Yes. And they're creating stories too, or they're like overhyping stories um, to make them more positive, to push public sentiment, like a, like essentially like a social experiment to move people's opinions on things in a different direction or just their general outlook. So they basically looked at like what's been going on in the US and they said, we should try that. Let's pick up on all the things that they did wrong and move it in that direction. I heard- well, uh, I heard- You went negative, they're going positive, right? right? That's the- I heard uh, Xi Jinping- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard Xi Jinping uh, changed his uh, new like campaign motto to "Don't harsh my mellow." So pretty much like <laughs> set in line with the good vibes only. I, 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 you know what though? The sad part is I have a lot of trouble even like believing some of the stuff that I hear because it's so outlandish that it's like I can't tell if it's like 
Chinese propaganda or it's USA propaganda at this point. It's just all propaganda to me at this point. Yeah. We should make that a game segment one day. Yeah, you have to assume that anything that's coming from like a rival country um, in that part of the world, whether it's Russia, North Korea, China, the, any adversary country that we choose in the Middle East any time of the week – um, that there has gone through a significant filter of like, let's figure out how to shift the narrative around this to something that works in our favor. Well, you, you have to wonder if even that story was deliberately curated for that reason, right? I mean, it could have been. There was, um, there was an individual who was in the article who is supposed to, the best way I could describe him is like the Chinese version of Jake or Jared Paul. Um, <laughs> Or Logan Paul. They're, they're oh, like, so he's fucking awesome, man. Yeah, it's just like normal goon yeah, stuff that goes great. on. Like, I think this guy's claim to fame was he stole like scooters and he said that he never wanted to work. But essentially, what the Chinese government did was they took all of his social media accounts and they blanked them and they basically removed all of the abilities for him to monetize his name or his brand. And now this individual who said, I'm never going to work a day in my life now owns like a barbecue shop somewhere in China. And they interviewed that individual and he was like, you know, man, I got to have it. I got to do something like I can't do anything else. I kind of like the idea of getting rid of influencers, though. They've taken away like his platforms, right? His his. Mm -hmm. So they took away his platforms and they basically took away his source of income as well because he was going to have deals um, where he was going to promote certain products. And apparently this individual is very good looking and um, he was going to use his looks to make money. And the Chinese government's like, nah, man, you're painting us in a bad light. We're not playing that game. We get a lot of crap. Like we get a lot of stuff in, in, you know, in the U.S. about like cancel culture and things like that. That's actual cancel culture. Yes. Like that's actually the government saying like, no, we're taking away your right to do – to have – you know, free enterprise to where like, you know, corporations kind of make that decision in the US. Um yeah, that that's actual real life. Like, but but again, at the same time, it's like you're not promised a job just because you're good looking or just because, you know, you you have fans. Um ultimately I do think words matter, but I think there has to be a bigger discretion about what you do when somebody says something you don't like. Uh, I think it's extreme to take away, you know, their monetization and all that. But yeah, again, it's it's hard to decipher what is <laughs> anything comes comes in. Like I, you have, like you said before, like you have to assume that it's this this whole message has been groomed in somehow, some way, somehow. So uh, I can't tell what what the propaganda is at this point. All right, any any system that is built or created, right? Eventually, people find ways of overcoming that system or getting around where it is to achieve what they need, right? And in this case, all I see is that it's going to be more coded language. You're going to have to guard your messages, your content a little bit differently. I think we can speak I think I can speak for all of us though. I think our main message, if anybody gets anything out of this is infowars.com sponsoring today's podcast. Alex Jones, thank you so much. We love you. Bring Alex Jones back. Bring him back on Twitter. Thank you. Speaking of ridiculousness, did any of you see the Las Vegas Hyperloop demonstration that they have? Is that the Elon Musk thing? Yes. So Yeah, I saw there was yeah, I saw that. It basically 
is a big tunnel that I think only Teslas can drive in. Am I wrong in that? No, you're, you're right about that, yeah. And a part of me is just like, why didn't we just build a subway? This has been, this has been the longstanding uh, argument that I've had, is that Elon Musk is like super anti-trains and like public transportation. And it's so dumb because he, the one thing he kept promising over and over again was like, there'll never be traffic on his Hyperloop, never. And the one video that got leaked online in the Hyperloop is a guy in a Tesla and all of a sudden traffic. And he's like, yeah, it's always traffic in this thing. So it's like, wait, 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 they, they already created the Hyperloop? I th there's there's either like it's either a test I don't know I don't know for sure so I'm kind of speaking out of turn here I just saw a video on Twitter but I I there there was a they're either doing like a test run or something but it's like it, the idea alone is insane because it's a single lane there are two tubes you, and they're single lane apiece yeah how do you expect that to not eventually reach a point of congestion it just it doesn't make any sense so I'm going to read um, a part of this article that I found. So the new Vegas loop will connect to the existing loop under the Las Vegas Convention Center and will operate similarly in that passengers will travel in Tesla vehicles. The current loop, which made its debut in June, operates on as a 0.8 mile tunnel carrying up to 4,400 passengers per hour. Capacity for the larger loop is planned for 57,000 people per hour, while the transport under the LVCC is free of charge. The new development will be fare-based for riders. By the way, the projected start date of construction and cost will has not been announced, although press reports say development costs will be paid for by the boring company and passenger stations by respective property owners. This to me is very worrisome because one, why can't we just build a fucking subway tunnel that is owned by the city? And then two, why are we letting a billionaire manage our mass transportation in a city that honestly needs it? Like, I don't understand this fascinating, I have never understood this fascination with Elon Musk. He's an interesting never. guy that doesn't make him a smart guy. My my take exactly on Elon. I just don't understand for the life of me why anyone needs to get to Vegas any faster to like get disappointed quicker. I don't. Oh, this is just to get around Vegas. Get Not around even to Vegas. Vegas. Oh, okay, okay. Is it that bad? It's not that big of a place, man. I've been there. What are we... There's not a whole lot of places to get to in Vegas either. If you're not it's on the strip, wrong. you're lost. Turn around. The man is just so opposed to trains. It's just, it's so funny to me. Did he um, have like a Thomas the Tank Engine nightmare when he was a child or something? <laughs> He's still, like, it's like, you know how uh, people have like sleep paralysis and like their sleep demon is typically something that they fear the most? Thomas His, the Tank Engine. It's Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> Comes out with like a little steam engine. I mean, I just assume when he was a little kid, like the the whistle blew and he went ants in front of his class. And since then, he's vowed to destroy trains. You know. To, to be fair, though, if you go into a bathroom on the Long Island Railroad, that will scar you for life too. But this does yeah. not sound enjoyable for me. Like I I find it funny that. People like Elon Musk are trying to warn the world about like artificial intelligence taking over and becoming sentient. And 
moving towards this like boring future when in reality, this is probably as boring as it gets completely inefficient way of getting around where we have like thousands of these Tesla cars that by the way, have a lot of issues um, in a tunnel that is built by a third party company and yeah, managed by that company. Anything. There's, there's no enjoyment to it whatsoever. This is like sitting in the middle seat of an airplane. This, yeah, this, like, has middle, this has middle seat vibes. Right on. You can... Serious question. What happens if you get into a, an accident in the Hyperloop? It's a single you just walk. You just yeah, walk you it like, back. You have to like, do you have to like push your car out of the Hyperloop? Is that, what, is that how it works? Because like, you can't get like an emergency vehicle in a single lane. No. So, like, I, I, seems, seems like a bad idea to me. Just, I'm no expert here. I'm not as smart as Elon Musk. I don't claim to be. Uh, seems like a bad idea. Did he not see the movie Daybreak? Oh, I, I saw that. <laughs> With Sylvester Stallone about a tunnel that I don't remember whether it was intentional or like there was an accident, but the tunnel got closed and all these people were stuck in there. We might need to have like a movie review section where we talk about the next Karate Kid, Daybreak. <laughs> Those are the or daylight, whatever it's called. Daybreak, daylight. I mean, does it really does it really have to work, or does he just need to get people to invest in the idea? That's really the thing here. That's oh, really people, it. People will invest in you know, he does. I mean, but it doesn't mean it's right. He he got he started SpaceX because he said those contracts that have rules and regulations on how you get the bids um i'm just gonna undercut everyone fuck up every time because he's trying to do it all cheap and fast he it was a business move you know what i mean that's the mo you know i've watched enough spacex rockets blow up on the launch pad to know that this might not be the best idea for him yeah no. i think you might want to sit this one out his but, greatest uh, creation was a fucking flamethrower that thing is sick though i'm not gonna lie that thing's sick yes I agree. Not helping my day to day. <laughs> but he's not he's not my asshole of the week though. So I, I'm I'm not gonna choose him. I, I listen, my asshole of the week is pretty simple. I we I talked at nauseum about this, so I'm not gonna get super into it. Hey, it's the Giants and uh, John Mara and pretty simple. I've I spoke ad nauseum, so I'm not gonna go out over it again. I'm just gonna put it out there. Biggest assholes of the week. Tom, who's your biggest asshole of the week? So I think for me, and I want to preface that I have not been following the Novak Djokovic stuff as much as other people, but I think he's got to be my asshole of the week solely because of the um, him trying to get into Australia and the Australian government saying that he wasn't allowed in and he appealed to the, the higher court. And they allowed him in on a technicality. I'm not somebody who is super anti or pro masks. I think there are there are interesting expectations for wearing masks in certain places. But the reason why Djokovic is my asshole of the week is because there is video documentation of him bouncing around talking to people the day that he had tested positive for COVID-19. And for me, a celebrity who is so willing to shirk the responsibility that they have and go around and basically like breathe on people in public, he might not be feeling any symptoms, but he doesn't know if any of these other people are. And 
he is essentially the Eastern European Aaron Rodgers at this point where he doesn't see a big deal. <laughs> I don't know if we can have a two-time asshole of the week. I don't, I don't remember if Aaron Rodgers was last week for his comments, but there was also a report that came out that he said that he could potentially boycott the Super Bowl if they get there, if there's COVID-19. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He's also inoculated or whatever the fuck the word he used was too. <laughs> um, he's been immunized. So he's, he's we immune. all, yeah, we all know how slippery he can be with words, but Djokovic is my asshole of the week. He's in Australia right now, probably creeping out somewhere, whatever. Yeah. It, it, you know, that situation is really interesting because I mean, they, are, are they providing him some kind of exception, like a medical exception? So he claimed a medical exception, but I don't necessarily know what it said because I don't think that they've covered it. Like they have not gone in depth that, about that. I would assume he's probably religious or something that he claimed because I, I mean, I can't think of anything that he would have that, but again, I don't know his situation, but yeah, it's, 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 again, it's, it's showing that guys like Rogers and Djokovic can get away with things like that because they are who they are. And, you know, it's pretty typical that like in, in this pandemic, we, we've been trying to equate the idea that everyone is essentially equal and that they can all transfer the virus just the same as anybody else. Doesn't matter if you're a celebrity or you know, some guy walking on the street. But, uh, of course, it's just, again, it's another example of, you know, if you're rich and famous, if you're a famous celebrity, you typically get more exceptions. In regard to the exception, and this is what's kind of controversial about this, too, he claims he had COVID um, at the end of last year. He was claiming that was the reason he was immune. Mm. And So that's even that's shame. kind of ticky-tacky, though. Yeah, because most of the stuff has shown that natural immunities doesn't even provide even close to the amount of uh, uh, as far as like as far as the protection of like the vaccine or or the booster shot. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it, again, it's just again, it's a pretty typical situation as far as I'm concerned. And I know that there's a lot of conversation around like peak athletes and how like their bodies are strong enough where if they do test positive, they'll be okay. Ask Eduardo Rodriguez former Boston Red Sox pitcher, now Detroit Tiger, about what happened when he tested positive for for COVID-19 and he was diagnosed with myocarditis and he couldn't walk for like six months and he almost died from it. So I, I challenge Djokovic's men, mindset of like, oh, well, I can't give it to other people and other people are strong enough. Like you don't know other people's medical history either. You don't know who's immunocompromised. And it's also impacted totally healthy people. That's, That's Carl Anthony Towns. That's Carl Anthony Towns. He lost almost his entire family. Right. Got to who you got for your asshole of the week. Give it to us. Being positive in 2022, I'm going to go with hero of the week. And Ooh, um, yeah, my hero, Mr. Bob Saget. Rest mm -hmm. in peace. RIP. The world was saddened to hear the news of Bob's passing um, in his hotel room in Orlando, Florida. Great guy. We, we grew up on him, you know? You know, I guess it's it's played out to say he was a father to everyone. I, to me, like the originator of the dad joke. For sure. He will definitely yeah. be missed. He was a great comedian, great talent, all-around good guy. And that's why he is my hero of the week. There was no more mind-blowing experience for me. When I was younger, I used to watch America's Funniest Home Videos with him. 
and uh, it was a very corny show and all that. And he, you know, obviously, like you said, dad jokes. It was just constant, just dad jokes. And it was very PG. When I saw Half Baked for the first time. Yes. Yes. And he's standing there and he says, have you ever sucked dick for Coke? And I was like, no, that's my dad right there. Is that Bob Saget? No. (laughs) And it's just such a, it's such a, like, it's such a crazy moment that I will never forget. So he, uh, but to find out that Bob Saget, Mr. Wholesome Full House was like a dirty comic was just such a crazy experience. One of the funniest guys out there for sure. Yeah. I think you have to give it up to him because I think it shows incredible range as a comedian and as an actor to be able to be the wholesome dad on on Full House and then host America's Funniest Home Videos for a very long time and then be the comedian that he was, but also be kind of the un- unsung hero of How I Met Your Mother as the father. Yeah, forgot um, about that. I think that one too, just the way that he was able to portray that character and narrate that entire story for all of the seasons is very underrated. I mean, I I did not spend a lot of time watching Full House. I did not spend a lot of time watching America's Funniest Home Videos. I don't watch a ton of stand-up comedy, but the things that I saw from him were dynamite. And that's just, you know, it's, it's one of those like, deaths that you're like completely blown away and shocked by Robert Durst died this week, whatever. Um, (laughs) The real estate, the real estate mogul who murdered his wife. And I think murdered two or three other people. The Uh, Yeah, You can put him in this conversation right now, but there are, there are people like that. You're like, all right, whatever. But then there's Bob Saget's of the world. Yeah. The Betty whites where you're just like, yep. Shit. I will say though, if you've not seen the Jinx on HBO Max, it's incredible. It's a very, it's a very captivating uh, documentary about Robert Durst. I watched about three quarters of it a long time ago. Did that come out in like 2015? It's definitely. I, I'm not not sure exactly on the year, but it's definitely a couple of years back. But uh, the, you have to get to the last episode because the last episode, the last like half an hour of it, there's something that happens. If, and if you've not seen it, I won't I won't spoil it because there there are always few moments that like very few and far between that come out in a documentary where you're like, holy shit. And if again, so for if you've seen it, you probably know what I'm talking about. If you haven't. Go watch it because it's a total holy shit moment. Is that on all HBO streaming platforms? It is on all streaming platforms, yes. Fantastic. uh, (laughs) Well, I guess that leads us, since I'm already plugging HBO stuff, we can get into our picks of the week. Tom, what do you got for us? Um, Nothing too out of the ordinary. I am continuing with the book Empty Mansions. And that book focuses on the life and time of Yugat Clark, the heiress of the Clark Copper Fortune. Mm. I am in the point of the book right now where they are starting to discuss her aging and she has, her mother has died and she has moved into doctor's hospital in Manhattan where she stayed for like 25 years before doctor's hospital closed. And it's just a very, very interesting book in the sense that this is somebody who was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and disappeared off the face of the planet 
for the last maybe 50 years of her life. And they haven't gotten to the part where they talk about what happened after she died and how her money got divvied up, but they discussed some of the, the mansions that her father owned that were since passed down to um, her mother and then subsequently to her when her mother died. But it was an interesting part of the book where they talked about W.A. Clark's art collection which was 800 pieces and donated to the Museum of Modern Art in New York City at his death. But there were three conditions for that art collection. One, it needed to be displayed in its entirety. Every single piece needed to be displayed at once. It needed to be displayed all together. It couldn't be broken up and it needed to be displayed forever. Mm. And the Museum of Modern Art was like, well, first off, you have fakes in your collection. Um, and second, you have stuff that doesn't match. We go by like theme and by year. And if we were just put everything together, it wouldn't make any sense. But eventually they were able to divvy it up in a way that made it make sense. But all that to be said, the reason why you don't know who W.A. Clark is, is because unlike Carnegie and the Mellon Brothers and John D. Rockefeller, he did not give a lot of money away. And the reason why you don't know him very well is because he was very intentional about where his money went in terms of philanthropic dollars, but he was pretty lean when it came to what he was willing to give away. Interesting. So you have this huge copper empire that's owned by one person that has essentially been disappeared from the history books because he's not the philanthropist that Andrew Carnegie or Rockefeller were or JP Morgan. And you're gonna, you should provide a link for that uh, to Amazon if you wanted, anybody else wanted to read that uh, yep. for this title. I, I, put a, I put a link in the last episode that we have, but I'll do it again. It's, it's a fascinating book because it talks about a part of like America that has aged out, the nouveau rich of the turn of the century and how we don't really have that anymore where you get Clark and her sister Andre were born in France, but their American father raised in France, left France at the start of World War One, during the, uh, the Battle of the Marne. And now we're getting into that stage of the book where she's turning like 85, 90, and she's hasn't left this hotel room in like 25 years. Jeez. Paying a personal assistant $187,000 to go to one of her three apartments in this apartment building and inventory her stuff every day to make sure nothing was stolen. That's that's a little excessive. I feel like she could probably just call ADT and get a security <laughs> system. I mean, when you have a Renoir um, sitting over your mantelpiece, you want to make sure someone's checking on that every day to make sure it's still there. Yeah, okay, I mean, here's a question I got, though. If one encounters a Renoir, the average thief probably won't even know that that's what they're looking at. They're like, that's that's why they have art thieves. Okay, sure. I just finished this part of the book where they were going through like her expenses broken down by month and then how much she was spending a year. It was like $800,000 a year just on porcelain dolls she was buying. Like these antique porcelain Whoa, dolls. Those things are so fucking creepy too. Yes. They got the, the dead eyes that just stare at you no matter where you are. And spending oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to purchase them and to hire 
artists to create like stages for them as well to like reenact scenes from books and her personal assistant would bring all this stuff to the hospital and she'd like play with it for like a couple hours and then just have it boxed up and brought back to her apartment this is like she's like in her mid to late 80s at this point so my question what happened to the copper empire it get handed off to other people was she still making money off of this copper empire as she was uh wa clark died i think in the 1930s and the 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 copper market crashed along with the Great Depression. And I think eventually what happened is they sold off a lot of it too, because John Rockefeller and Standard Oil was also trying to basically undercut the entire copper market so he could take it for himself. They sold off a lot of, they sold off the, the once WA died, they sold off a lot of the copper mines they sold off the newspapers the railroad that they opened um and a number of the other industries that they had and they just kind of banked and chilled and gotcha so she was just living off of all that wealth right there like 300 million dollars just chilling just chilling on 300 million is that all yeah that's it yeah all right 300 million, 300 million? that's it oh. yeah. pocket, pocket, pocket change right there yeah <laughs> I think the property taxes for one of her apartments was like $380,000 a year. Yeah, it's about the price of a house on Long Island here. So, you know, just in property taxes alone, extreme. Gatto, you got any uh, pick of the week to tell us about? Well, Tom, you're not the only person who fucking reads around here, all right? It's called Fuzz, and it's by um, Mary Roach. The reason I picked this off of the shelf was because I've read stuff by Mary Roach before, specifically a book called Grunt, and it's it's nonfiction. It's very interesting nonfiction, though. She delves into very weird areas of science, um, topics that you just don't come across. For instance, Grunt was about humans at war and all the different scientists and engineers that were employed by the U.S. government to work on problems that the U.S. military had. And they went from things like testing out materials to how to build more rock-solid Hummers. And what she does is chapter to chapter, she tells a story through their, their articles in the, in the book themselves that all tie together. And Fuzz is actually a very fun intersection of wildlife human conflict i'm about 100 pages in and it's a really fascinating read let me ask you guys a question what do you think's more deadly bears or elephants elephants i mean i would i feel like this is a trick question and i feel like it's elephants but uh i'm gonna stick with bears bears are gnarly it's elephants man no. Elephants, in India at least, they kill more people than bears annually. Um, they actually get fucking all drunk. They will find booze. They will actually tear down walls on houses. And the males will get all aggressive. They will actually go and fucking charge at you and fucking rip you to shreds. So basically the same as people on Long Island and mainstream patchog on a Friday night. Yeah, I mean they still so put on their tap out t shirt and <laughs> put up they blast Joe Rogan podcast. 
in their in their ears while they're coming at you. There's also a lot of incidences where, so the, the Indian government, whereas versus the U.S. government, if an animal kills a human, they investigate it, which they also do here. But if it's deemed accidental, it doesn't count. But if an animal in India kills more than three people, then it's considered an animal that needs to be taken out, right? Mm. Um, yeah. In the U.S., um, regardless of the circumstances, any animal that kills a human is then put down. Yeah. Is that more related to just Indian culture and religion? Because I think they have a greater understanding and appreciation of animals on a religious level, correct? Uh, yes, but no, because um, another chapter that I was reading, leopards will actually go and um, they will stalk out people working in fields and farms. Yeah. And they get three strikes as well. Whereas they're even more DWI policy. And <laughs> man, man, the le- the leopard PR group must be really strong in India because like the le- like the leopard like the, the face eating party like they must like they must the leopard lobbying group is yeah man, has really a lot tough, of financial man. backing. A lot of good lawyers. I heard a lot of good lawyers are going there. They're like that's where all the good work is nowadays. Sidney Powell is representing <laughs> leopards in India. <laughs> They're, they're about to break the case wide open. There was this guy in the field. They're saying it's a leopard. They're saying it's fake news. It was George Soros. No the evidence to time. that. George Soros was behind that guy getting killed. It wasn't a leopard. <laughs> well, that's that's really that's interesting. And actually, speaking of George Soros, I uh, my I'm not as well read as you guys. So my my uh, recommendation is actually going to be a podcast. Um, it's called Fever Dreams. Uh, it's done by the Daily Beast. Uh, hosted by Will Summer and Oswin Subsang. Um, if you are into the crazy, nutty shit that goes on in American politics, whether it be QAnon, um, whether it be just fringe groups, they cover all the weird uh, QAnon stuff. And I swear, I've every week I feel like I've heard the craziest story that I could possibly hear, and it's constantly one-upped every single week. Um, Will Summer, he's actually working on a project currently, I think, with HBO Max on a show. Um, and he is he's al- great, by the way. He's fantastic. And he will always they know who he is, and he will still go to all the QAnon events, shows up, they scream at him, they curse at him, and he doesn't care. He just shows up and and reports what he sees. He it's incredible content. Uh, if you've not heard from it, it's called Fever Dreams. Definitely take him, give it a listen. Absolutely. He's been on the QAnon Anonymous podcast a bunch of times, he's too, great. and every time he's on, it's, you know, you have to tune into it. And he's funny, too. Like, he's great. Yeah. He recognizes the absurdity of a lot of the things that, what has what stood out for you in terms of what they've covered on the show, conspiracy theory related or individuals? It always comes back to the grift. It always comes back yes. to that. Because... To where any angle, because like too too often, if you look at things in a vacuum, it just looks like crazy people being crazy. But when you realize that every single step they take is ultimately pushed towards uh, marketing a product, pushing a narrative to, you know, ultimately, whether I don't know if it's inducing stock or whatever it could be. Um, you know, the ivermectin thing was a huge thing for a while, obviously taking fucking horse paste. Anything that they do, but what's most compelling to me, what's most compelling to me is the infighting that happens. 
it's because recently uh, Michael Flynn, the, the disgraced general, and Sidney Powell have been beefing. Um, and essentially trying to one-up each other and hold on to the audience because I think they realize at this point that if it's not for the QAnon audience, they don't have anything. Mind you, Q, the, the, the Q, which is pretty much, if you watch the documentary on that, um, it's probably the Watkins family that is behind most mm-hmm. of the recent posting, have not posted in a year. And yet you would expect that if they're person that they've been relying on for information and for motivation is gone you would expect the movement to die it has not it's actually gotten stronger over the last year it's gained new members and despite the fact that nothing they've said has ever come true they have only hardened their resolve and it's an interesting case on like you know the mental aspect of it is it that people actually really still believe or is it that they have dug their feet in so deep that they can't turn back now. It's compelling. I think it's a lot of that. Who was the um, who was the other lawyer? There was Sidney Powell and the guy in Georgia. I can't remember his name. Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood. He actually. Um, it's a big infight between the three of them: Mike yes. Flynn, Sidney Powell, and Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood actually tried to represent Kyle Rittenhouse as he did. well, and he called him and crazy. <laughs> yeah, and that's the funniest part. Like this dude, who you have to wonder, like how what Kyle Rittenhouse is going, through, what's going through his brain. But at the same time, he's like that dude's nuts. Like he tried to like grift money out of me. Linwood also represented. I don't remember the kid's name, but there was that whole um, situation where uh, he sued the major networks. He was the with man with the Native American the- man. The Covington yes. um, High School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also represented him there. Yeah, the kid. And mind you, th- that kid settled. Now, it's been disputed how much money he walked away with. Some people are like, he walked away with $100 million. Probably walked away with like 50 grand, 100 grand, maybe. Yeah. Lynn Wood was his lawyer. Now, after that situation, obviously with Lynn Wood going nuts after the election, that even that Covington kid was like, this guy's out of his mind. Thank you for getting me money, but ultimately you're crazy. The funniest yeah, thing, that the biggest thing though, is Lynn Wood has been accused by many people as being a democratic operative. Because yes. if you remember after the election, there was obviously the runoff election in Georgia uh, for the Senate seats where obviously Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff both won. He was actively telling Republican voters not to vote in this election until they supported Donald Trump's bid to try and steal the election back. So there, there's actually a segment of the QAnon people who have accused Linwood of being a Democratic operative working for George Soros. It's, it is a, he was just kind of done with his own work. <laughs> it, I'm telling you, they they do the podcast. <laughs> they do a, they do the podcast very well because they structure it really well. Uh, they always have very good guests on, and it again every week. I'm like, what could we be looking at this week? What is going to be crazier the next week? I've, if you were looking for a first episode to jump into a little while back, they did coverage of Mike Lindell's uh, symposium, cyber symposium. Fantastic. Um, the nonsense that went on during there is incredible. Um, that Mike Lindell is not a fan of Will Summers, obviously. I would definitely give that a listen if you're looking for an episode to jump in. Glad, glad we, we can tell listeners to go listen to something else. 
So. Hey, I mean, you know what? There's plenty of time to to uh, to induce content. So, as far as I'm concerned, you gotta you gotta be able to keep up on some of the craziness that's going on in this world. We're more of a fun podcast. That's more of an information. Sure. By the way, Linwood. Another fun fact about Linwood before we end uh, the podcast: he also lives on a plantation. Just wanted to throw that out there. Of course. Yeah. You did bring up something, though. You mentioned, because um, you were talking about documentary on HBO Max. Did anyone catch the season premiere of Euphoria? That show is fucking mental. It's it's mental. It's incredible, though. It's, it's something. I'm going to be honest. I have not seen it. I've seen previews for it, but I thought it was like a, like a teen move like a teen tv show and i was like i'm gonna pass on this i'm just gonna watch the wire again (laughs) it it definitely is centered around teenagers and uh it definitely it's definitely hitting that market but there's there is something like a lot of people have kind of like had the idea of like is this a really like a app like i don't know an accurate representation of what teenagers go through. And I think it's kind of like a mixed bag. Some of the stuff I'm like, yeah, that definitely happens. Some of it is completely outlandish. Uh, but they, I, I will give them credit. They go out of their way. They're actually got Kodak to uh, provide out of stock film that they no longer use anymore. Uh, just to make it look better. Um, they put a lot of money into it. And by the way, broke HBO max records on Sunday, 2.5 million uh, people watched it. And that's actually the biggest number since the HBO Max started and biggest number probably since Game of Thrones. So it's actually doing quite well. And honestly, for good reason, man. The storytelling's good. The the acting's good. The direction is just well put together. It, it's entertaining. Honestly, it, it gives me, when I watch, I have moments of anxiety. There's moments mm-hmm. of elation. It's... It's a solid show. I didn't think it's not my cup of tea, right? It's not something I thought I'd be interested. Like you said, it's a credit to the writing because the story, the the characters are well fleshed out. And ultimately the characters are very nuanced. They don't, they're, they're neither good nor bad. Some of them are worse than others, but you can tell even the bad characters are more afflicted by trauma rather than, you know, just, evil in nature so i can appreciate that they they really put a lot of effort into uh developing the characters they're not like too often a lot of these shows like especially when it's centers around teenagers it's like it's too often they're just so one-dimensional it's like there's no nothing to it they're very masterful at creating a lot of gray with their characters there's certain characters that you're living for on the show and there's other characters that you can't wait to see them get their coming uprance um yep. maybe that's a little of an easter egg for season season two episode one if you haven't mm-hmm. seen it yet and check that out it's really good and that also brings up another show coming out on Friday, Peacemaker, part of the Suicide Squad. It's directed by James Gunn. Interesting. Yeah. John John Cena's fucking awesome. I mean, like he's he's not a good actor in any circumstance, but like he it, like the Suicide Squad was a whole lot of fun and his character was fucking crazy and I'm I'm excited to see where they take that. Yeah, definitely check that out. Um HBO Max. I think that's what you say Gato Thursday that comes on. 
Thursday, if yep. not Friday. Sorry, folks, we're not that exact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's coming up this week, and uh, you know all that. Like I mentioned, uh, daily uh, the Daily Beast, uh, Fever Dreams, available on any of your podcasting apps, as well as the Second Mouse Podcast, available on all of your podcast apps that includes uh, Spotify, Apple. You know where to find us. Go check us on our Instagram. Go check us out on our Twitter. Tom, take us out. Yeah, so our Instagram is Second Mouse Podcast, um, all letters, and you can find us on there. If you like what you hear and you want to help us out, please give us a rating. Give us five stars and leave a review. Um, that's the way that we're going to be able to continue to create this glorious content for you all. But other than that, thanks you all for listening. We'll see you in a, in a week.
It's a dumpster, baby, for sure. Dumpster. <laughs>